So you look into the mirror of the Psalms and what do you see? You see yourself as you really are, which is in Jesus Christ. So the Psalms, they take us through all occasions of life. They meet us in the valley of the shadow of death. They're there with us in the greatest heights and successes of our lives. Uh, We can enter into them from anywhere in the experience of life. Sadness, sickness, happiness, joy, victory, defeat, we can enter into them. But no matter where we enter into them, they all run toward the same goal. They're all heading towards the same destination. And that goal is the kingdom of God, life in the city of God. So for all their willingness to enter into the raw mess of of crucified human life, they all aim at resurrection joy. And that's what we see. That resurrection joy is what we see as we come to Psalm 145 here at the end of the Psalter. So Psalm 145 is the end of the fifth and final book of Psalms. There's five books and Psalm 145 is at the end of the fifth book. It transitions to the conclusion, and the conclusion is Psalm, Psalms 146 to 150. It's this hallelujah chorus where it just breaks out with joy and singing. So when we come to Psalm 145, we're really coming to the climax of the whole thing. And this psalm has long been recognized as having a special status. So it shows up more than any other psalm in the Jewish prayer book. The Babylonian Talmud gave it this sort of creedal status that they, the rabbis would say, if, if anyone says this, th- recites this psalm three times per day, they can know that they are a child of the world to come. So this is the climax of the psalms. It's a special summary psalm of what they're all about. And let me show, show you a little bit why this is the case. We'll just geek out for a second if you want more info on this, ask me later. But uh, this is one of a few acrostic psalms. So an acrostic is, is a psalm where each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So what we're doing here is, is, as we go into this acrostic psalm is we're being taken through the ABCs of God's goodness, of God's greatness. And, and the theme of the whole psalm is there in verse 1. It says, I will extol you, my God and my King. This is one of the few places in the entire Psalter where God is not just called a king or the king, but he's called my king. And if you dig a little bit deeper and you look at the structure of this psalm, well, the middle of it is right there in verses 10 to 13. And the alphabet of that middle section, verses 10 to 13, the letters in Hebrew are Yod, Kaf, Lamed, Melech which is, may not mean that much to you, but let me put it this way. If you, they spell my king backwards. It's a little nugget here to tell us this whole psalm, like the whole Psalter, is designed to get the truth of God as king deep down into your heart. So he's not only the king, but he's my king. So this psalm wants to help us worship God as king in a deep and transformative way. And, and we're going to look at what it asks us to do to enter into that experience. Uh, I think it tells us to do three things. Number one, marvel at his greatness. Number two, rehearse his goodness. And number three, sing of his glory. Let's look at each of those together briefly. First, let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Thank you for giving us 
the scripture, and specifically the Psalms. They are the one portion more than any other that you've given to us so that we can address you and pour our lives into the mold of Christ. And we pray that we'd be blessed in the hearing of your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here's the first thing that I see in this psalm. Number one, marvel at his greatness. Stand in awe of the king. Let your mind and your heart be dazzled by his infinite splendor. Look at verses 1 and 2. It's subtle here. The psalmist sets himself to blessing and praising God's name. He says, I will extol you, my God and king, and bless your name forever and ever. He says, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then in verse 3, he mentions the name of God explicitly. It's there as the Lord in all caps. It's Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The great I am that I am. The absolute, indefinable, self-existent one. And the psalmist calls us to recognize not only that the Lord is great in some relative sense, but that he is great in an absolute sense. That he's unsearchable, inexhaustible, and infinite. His greatness is unsearchable, it says in verse 3. Unsearchable greatness. Plato, the philosopher, was known to have said, to know God is hard, but to describe him, impossible. To know God is hard, but to describe him, impossible. But the church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, says, no, Plato has it wrong. He says, it's more like this. To describe God is not possible, but to know him is even less possible. What does he mean? In other words, Plato says, we have some sort of intuitive grasp of God. We already know him, and we just need to remember what we already know, what's already there present to us. Even if we can't put it into words, and Gregory says, no, God transcends our system and our thoughts about him entirely. And the only way we can know him is if he reveals himself to us. And that's why throughout the Old Testament, when God shows up, he doesn't show up as, a, as an old familiar friend. Hello, I haven't seen you in a while. No, he shows up uh, as a surprising and liberating and even frightening God. He's holy and he has to veil himself in order to appear. So he, he shows up in a burning bush. He appears through angels of various sorts. In Exodus 33, when Moses asks to see God's face, God responds, you cannot see my face for no one can see me and live. There's true knowledge of God, but what Gregory of Nazianzus was saying is that we have to recognize he always vastly exceeds us. We can never plumb the depths of his glory. His greatness is unsearchable. Even when he reveals himself, it's true and adequate. But there's an infinite plenitude and depth to who he is. Why is this important to recognize? Is it just some esoteric, abstract point? I like esoteric and abstract points, so I could be guilty of that. But no, it's a key principle of worship. And it can rescue us from our bored and boring pragmatism. Uh, See, to be pragmatic is to divine something's worth by its usefulness for achieving some other goal. And, And this is... This is America. We are pragmatic. This is what we do. 
And when this infects our Christianity, though, we can even start treating God as a means to an end, as a means to achieving some goal. So God's the worth of being a Christian is that it provides ethical bearings or the worth of our faith is, is that the spiritual practices are therapeutic in some sense or uh, that it gives us community. And these things are all true, definitely. And they're goods. But what the psalm calls us to and what the Bible calls us to by pointing out that God's greatness is unsearchable, that, is, that he's transcendently great, is to say that God can never be reduced to a, mean, to a means to an end. God is the end for which every other means was created. He is what we are seeking in everything else. And the great irony of this is only when we stop seeking God as a means to an end and seek him rather as the end to every means, only then do we become the whole and healthy people that God created us to be. This is a call, the Psalms are a call to worship God, to adore him for who he is. There is a lot for us to do as Christians. There's a lot of things to get done, and there is a lot that Christianity does for us. But the end goal of the Christian faith is the vision of God. And if we're not learning that now to worship him, to adore him, what's this all for? Everyone in this city really wants to accomplish something, and that's great. But you know what God cares about first and foremost? Is that we delight in him. That we delight in him. So the psalm calls us, we've camped out here for a minute, but the psalm calls us marvel at his greatness, at who he is. Stand in awe of the king. Be dazzled by his infinite splendor. Of course, worshiping God as king is not just fathoming his sheer greatness. In fact, his greatness only becomes known to us in what he does for us, in his saving acts, where he shares his greatness with us. And so this leads to the second thing, and that is we need to rehearse his goodness. Rehearse his goodness. To have our hearts formed by the saving things he has done. Know his gracious acts as they relate to us. This is where the psalmist spends the bulk of his time. He says in verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. In verses 5 and 7, you can glance over that and see he focuses our attention on wondrous works, awesome deeds, abundant goodness, and the establishment of righteousness. And the point that's being made here is that this great God is not just distant or hidden from us, but that he steps into our lives and he acts on our behalf. He takes all of his power, his infinite greatness, and he puts it to work for the sake of his people. And in verses 8 and 9, we see what this means more specifically. It's mercy. It's mercy. He restrains his anger. He shows steadfast love. Look at verses 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Or look down to verse 14 and following. He upholds those who are falling. He raises up those who are bowed down. He provides for the needs of his creatures. He's kind in everything he does. He's near to those who who call on him. He saves rather than destroys. 
I don't have any particularly profound way to say this, but I, I just want to say it simply. The infinitely great God loves you. He loves us. He loves us not just because we're strong and successful. He loves sinners and failures. He shows mercy to us, and he doesn't just show mercy to us begrudgingly, as I too often do. Micah, the book of Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, it says the Lord delights to show mercy. The, the prayer of preparation, or the, the prayer of humble access that we pray uh, each week before the Eucharist, it says that his nature is always to have mercy. Showing mercy is God's thing. This is his thing. It is his thing to save people from difficult situations, to rescue them, to provide for our needs. He acts mercifully on his people, or for his people, again and again throughout the Old Testament. He keeps acting in mercy time and time again. They keep failing, and he lifts them up. And it's this story over and over, God's unfailing mercy. And it's all a picture of what he does once and for all in Jesus Christ. See, from all eternity, God, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, willed to share the infinite plenitude of his life with us in Jesus. And we couldn't ascend to the heights to share that reality because we're creatures and because we're sinners. So what does he do? What does he do? He condescends. He comes down to our level in Jesus. He becomes human, and in his death, he overcomes godlessness so that we can be sons and daughters of God. You might say, okay, we know that. We go to church, the Advent, it's the basic gospel message. We know these these things. Do we really know them? Do we really know them? In our epistle today, we read a, a prayer from uh, from, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians. And, and the, the book of Ephesians is really interesting because it's, it's the one epistle, as far as I can tell, where there are no problems mentioned. Uh, I, you know, Paul's writing this letter, and, and, and it's not like Corinth. He's just telling them. But, but yet, even though we don't know of any problems they had, Paul's prayer for them is still that they might be transformed so that they might, quote, know the immeasurable greatness of God's power, that they might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. Not, he wants them not just to know the gospel message in theory or as a grand story out there. He wants them to know it in such a way as it defines the way that they see the world, the way that they think about things, the way that they feel, that it becomes this filter through which they engage the world. He wants them to experience God's salvation in the context of their daily lives. Don't you want that in a fresh way? I do. I need that. I need that. I want to know God's gracious acts intimately and personally. I want to rehearse his goodness toward me. Paul's prayer in Ephesians is that the Spirit would do that work. And it is a work of the Spirit. But is there something I can do to get the Spirit to enlighten the eyes of my heart? To make this transformation happen in my life? Well, it is the Spirit's work. But there is one thing we can do. 
more than one, but there's one big thing. This is the third point, and it's simple. Sing. Sing. Sing of his glorious kingdom. Put the words of the psalmist on your lips in prayers and in songs. It's easy to forget when you're studying this psalm and geeking out on acrostic stuff that this was never meant to be analyzed or read with objectivity. At least ultimately. The words are given in order that you might make them your own. They're songs to be sung. And there's this centrifugal force to this psalm, this outward force to it. So look just briefly in verses 1 and 2. It starts out with this lone psalmist praising God, the Davidic figure, the type of Christ. Then you skip to verse 10, and, and he invites the saints into the song for the second verse. And then you go down, and it, and it ends in verse 21 with this opening to all. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And this kind of, this ending with this opening leads to the, the, the last five psalms, which are full of this command, praise, praise, sing, sing, sing. I'm not sure, but I almost get the impression that the Bible actually wants us to sing to make singing a significant part of our spiritual lives. I almost get the impression that singing might be important, that maybe it actually does something. That we can't just marvel intellectually, we can't just rehearse the greatness of God in detached terms, that we really have to sing it into us. For most people throughout the world, that's probably painfully obvious, the value of singing. Um, but I tend to, I think we tend to have a, a bit of a left-brained uh, view of things. I don't know if it's cultural or hangover of modernism or what, but uh, so let me just try to convince you that singing really does something. A few points. Number one, the Bible tells you to do it, okay? Throughout Scripture, the work of the Spirit is often accomplished through music. So a lot of scholars or, or, or traditionally think, well, hey, when did David start writing psalms? He started writing them in 1 Samuel 16 when the Spirit came upon him uh, so that he could write this music to help uh, soothe the tormented King Saul. In Ephesians 5, we're encouraged to be filled with the Spirit. And, and what comes as we see that? The next phrase Be filled with the Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. So the Bible tells you to do it. That should be good enough for you, but here is a theological uh, argument. The, The great theologian Jonathan Edwards says that singing is the closest we can get to the eternal kingdom of God. Because God himself... The Holy Trinity is the supreme harmony of all. He says, the supreme harmony of all. Bringing together one and three and three and one difference in ultimate unity. And the singing community, Edwards thinks, brings together this diversity and unity in a profound way that nothing else does. He says, when I would form in my mind an idea of a society in the highest degree happy... I think of them as expressing their love, 
their joy and the inward concord and harmony and spiritual beauty of their souls by sweetly singing to each other. Something heavenly about singing. And if that's not enough, the Bible and theology, well, even scientific research has verified that there's something powerful and transformative about singing in general and especially singing together. And one of the things that the studies I looked at said that's so encouraging is they went out of their way to emphasize even when the music is of mediocre quality. Now, you don't have mediocre quality music here, but anything I do in my car is very mediocre, and so that encourages me. But if singing is therapeutic and satisfying and transformative in general, how much more when we sing of Christ and his gospel, as the Psalms teach us to do? So here's the application for you. Sing. Make singing a significant part of your personal devotional life. Make it part of your core group if you're a core group leader. Come and engage church with excitement in this discipline of singing. Uh, you know, I used at my the old church that I was at in, in Australia, there, were, there was a, a guy that would wait outside during the singing. And then he would come in just to hear the sermon, take the Lord's Supper, and then he would leave before we started singing again. And uh, I just always thought that was so sad. Like, he, he thinks the singing is just sort of window dressing. The singing is not just window dressing. It's how we, we get the gospel into our heart. It's why it's so central. It's why we have a songbook, the center of the Bible. There were other people that just came for the singing and didn't and would leave for the sermon and that was probably my fault but <clears throat> so sing of God's glory put the words of praise on your lips literally you know i i um my wife Annie and I were married for almost 10 years without children and we went from 0 to 3 children uh in the space of 3 months foster a sibling set of foster children and um I, I didn't know how much work it would be and how busy the mornings would be. And so it's really hard to get as much time to pray and to read my Bible and to have my, you know. Um, and uh, I've had to really sort of look to music to help me connect with God in, in ways where I don't have as much time as I'd love. And it's a great discipline to put it on in the car. And the other thing is, is the kids, I, we try to read them... You know, the, the, the older ones, we try to read them Bible stories, and I'm not sure any of it's taking. But they know the songs that they're learning at church, and they know the songs we play uh, for them in the morning. And so I would really encourage you, you know, if you're not already using music as a spiritual discipline and a tool, then, uh, then do lean into that. So in, in closing, let me just encourage you to think about as far as the church, think about the role that songs play in every patriotic expression we have. You know, there's never been a political revolution without music for that revolution. Um, armies march off to battle with songs. 
And so ask yourself, you know, singing and marveling at God's glory, it does not seem like a very productive thing to do. But ask yourself if marveling at God's greatness and goodness through song might actually make the church more, not less active for the advance of God's kingdom. I think it might. And so we're going to close by singing a hymn. It's uh, written by the 19th century Englishman Robert Grant. Uh, Robert Grant was the son of a member of the Clapham sect, and he was himself a Christian lawyer. He was a politician dedicated to social reform uh, and Christian mission. He served in Parliament. He passionately fought to emancipate England's Jews. Uh, He served in all sorts of high government posts. And in the midst of all of his busyness, And his activism for the kingdom of God, he found time for praise. He praised. In fact, he wrote hymns. And I think if we were to ask him, he would say it's not that he found time for praise. It's that his praise fueled his life and the things he was able to accomplish for the kingdom of God. And so he wrote one of the best hymns in the English language, uh, O Worship the King. One of my favorites. And it wasn't inspired by Psalm 145, but uh, it it suits it really well. So I'm going to have Dan come up. And he's going to help us sing this, or at least a couple of verses of it. Oh, no.